the horrific, uh, tragic, and evil attack on Paris in November of 2015 really made the world turn. And, and the world responded, and the world weeped. And so I can only assume you all remember the very famous Eiffel Tower um, in the shape of a peace sign that flooded our social media. You guys remember what I'm talking about? And with each tweet and retweet and post and blog containing the hashtag, pray for Paris. Instagram alone reports that there are close to 7 million posts with that hashtag. And sidebar, I was thinking, if you think about it, even if only the person who posted it prayed an actual prayer, that would be close to 7 million prayers for the mothers, fathers, siblings, children, and loved ones of Paris. I think that's a really beautiful thought. But then some may remember, at least I do, some may remember new posts started to rise as they normally do. It was a post like this, which a local French artist said. He said, asking, he said this in asking the world to not... Pray for Paris. Friends, he says, from the whole world, thank you for your hashtag pray for Paris. But we do not need any more religion. Our faith goes to music, kisses, life, champagne, and joy. These types of, uh, at least those types of posts or claims only further at least hurt my heart for the wreckage that was becoming and was happening to Paris. And yet, and yet, still on one hand, as I was broken over this, on the other hand, I totally understood. Understanding that to the outside, religions of different faiths have inflamed and done way more damage than good. And, to, and basically, and to this world, prayer is a delusion. That many unbelievers and skeptics and outsiders and haters of God and perhaps even Christians see prayer as George Butcherick uh, once said. They may, seem, they may seem like this. It says, he said, a spasm of words lost in a cosmic indifference. Maybe some here tonight see prayer as a spasm of words lost in a cosmic indifference. Which leaves us, which leaves those to ponder and ask the question, what good is prayer? What good is prayer? In times of evil, like the attack on Paris, what good could prayer really do for them? All the way to our Mondays and Thursdays of our everyday life, what good is prayer? Now, if you're here and you don't believe in God and perhaps conflicted or bothered by the practice of prayer, please do not sweat it. We all are. We are all conflicted and bothered at times by the practice of prayer. And if Christians can't admit that, that it's a struggle, then well, whatever. But I'm here to say, I'm here to say we're all small and noobs and pilgrims when it comes to prayer. Now hear me, before we move on, I don't want to communicate early in the talk that impactful or sweetness in prayer is unattainable. One does not need to be an expert within prayer to find delight in prayer. Even this talk, this message, is from a man who hasn't pinned, you know, the prayer bear. But a fellow pilgrim still pondering, what good is prayer? What is the effects? What are the effects of prayer? Does prayer really change things? And we see from the apostles in our Bible verses that we just read that they truly seem to think so. 
If you're here for your first time tonight, let me fill you in uh, quickly. But our buddies, Peter and John, they being disciples and followers of Jesus, as Lorenzo was just talking about, were just released from the Jewish, uh, Jewish officials. Peter and John were threatened by them. They were held captive by them and put in prison by them. Why, you ask? Was it merely because in chapter 3 of Acts, they healed a 40-year-old man who was asking for change outside the temple? This individual who has never been able to walk, who has never been able to stand or run or skip or leap? Was that really the reason that they threatened these men? Or could it be, could it be that they told everyone that the healing, that the healing was done in the name of Jesus, by the power of Jesus, for the purposes of Jesus, for the glory of Jesus? we got to get this. This was the very same Jesus who the officials had just crucified a short while before. The very same Jesus who three days later supposedly kicked open his coffin and walked out. The very same Jesus whose body they cannot find. The very same Jesus who, which of any of this is true, has just changed the world forever. Yeah, that's the Jesus. But to Peter and John and others, Jesus was all of that and so, so much more. To them, it was the very same Jesus that would disappear in the dark of the morning for the purpose of prayer. It was the very same Jesus who, before his execution, prayed so intensely in the garden that he sweat blood. The very same Jesus who told his disciples that you can't exercise that demon because of your weakness in prayer. The very same Jesus who taught on prayer over preaching, who taught on prayer over leadership. The very same Jesus who told them to ask and seek and knock for everything, for anything. See, when we pause to realize just who this Jesus was to the believers in the early church, the verses we just read, everything we're about to read and go over tonight erupts with purpose and meaning. Look at verse 23 again. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God. So let's pretend, let's just pretend for a moment. You've been threatened by the government and you were just released from their custody. What is the first thing you do? What would be the first thing that you would do? For Peter and John, they're released. They run to their peeps. But get this, instead of grabbing weapons of war, stopping off at the ammo shop, instead of filing a lawsuit, instead of regrouping after a threat and getting an Airbnb in Palm Springs, what do they do? They lift their voices to God. They prayed. Now, doesn't this, at least to me it did, sound like the opposite of what would be wise to do in that moment? See, for me, like, where's the strategy? Somebody grab a whiteboard. We need to plan out our attack, what we're doing next. Seems like it's the opposite. You guys remember uh, Agent J when he went out on his first mission with the men in black? You guys remember? His weapon... His weapon that he received, and he walks in this room where he sees that that shelf and all this beautiful silver machinery and firearms. And Agent K hands him what was called the cricket. 
this teeny little deceptively small cricket legs, uh, cricket-sized firearm. See, prayer to so many can be cricket-like. It really has the same effect on both believers and unbelievers. It can feel deceptively small. See, but like Agent J, what happened when he fired off the cricket? You guys remember? Thank you. What happened when he fired off the cricket? It threw him, right? It completely threw him. Man, that's a good illustration. Just You guys are welcome. You got... You guys are so lucky to have me. Just joking. So they lifted their voices to God. That's what they decided to do. We're going to lift our voice to God. See, for the men and women in our text today, what is primal, what is primal to them is prayer. Now, I love this, and at the same time, I am very, uh, very convicted and challenged by it. See, prayer was of first importance, that being... Fundamental, that being primal. Now, to make sure we have the whole picture, I want to make sure we grasp this where we're at. What we do know for sure is that this is a public prayer gathering, much like the one we're having tomorrow night, which I hope many can attend. I doubt that all 5,000 plus believers were there, but the church, the community of Jesus followers, had gathered in some number. Where? Uh, not sure exactly. Some say it's at Solomon's portico where the, where the healing happened. Some say it's in the, in the upper room where Pentecost happened. Honestly, it don't matter. It does not matter. What matters is that they gathered and Peter and John tell them every detail of what has just transpired. And if we can just pause for a moment, if anybody in here understands Peter, does anybody else just picture how excited Peter is telling everybody? And then I was like, Jesus, boom, shakalaka, yeah. And you can see John like, no, <laughs> he's embellishing. You can see him just like, Peter's so excited to tell what has happened. He's pumped. He's completely pumped. But get this, the believers, we have to get this. The believers are hearing this for the first time. This fastly growing group of numbers is hearing this for the first time, that if anyone were to speak about or preach on or teach of Jesus, it will end very, very poorly for them. Uh, Few of us, if any, know this kind of persecution or oppression. Here in this public prayer gathering are um, fathers and mothers and husbands and wives and there's loved ones who are now being threatened it's like this group here, which I, I, I love very much, like my wife or my children, now being threatened because they might talk about Jesus. And these weren't hollow, shallow threats. These weren't hollow or shallow. This group knows all too well what these officials are capable of. See, they, they have to be thinking, they could possibly be thinking what happened to Jesus only a short time before. The torture and the whipping, and the execution. And they might be thinking, wait, so you're saying if we preach or talk about Jesus, now that, that could happen to us. That could happen to my child. Thus, they did the only thing they could think of. The primal instinct was to pray. Their primal instinct was to pray. It wasn't flee the city. We gotta get out of here. No, it was to pray. Collective church in times of distress, in times of discomfort, in times of difficulty, is your fundamental impulse to pray. 
I know mine always isn't. Author and minister uh, Oswald Chambers is right there with us, or at least with me. Uh, He says, we tend to use prayer as a last resort. But God wants it to be our first line of defense. We pray when there's nothing else we can do, but God wants us to pray before we do anything at all. Most of us would prefer, uh, however, to spend our time doing something that will get immediate results. Guilty. We don't, want to get, we don't want to wait for God to resolve matters in his good time because his idea of good time is seldom in sync with ours. I mean, this is very Casey Fritz. Uh, maybe you can relate. I mean, I, I've talked to many of you here. We like to, we like to solve. We like to fix. We, you know, I like to be a plumber and solve every drain and strain that is in my life. These last couple of weeks especially have been issue after issue, and my inbox is filled with wonderful things. <laughs> and was prayer the primal tool in my heart just working away on me this last week? Sadly, no. It was once I exhausted, like, Casey Fritz's, you know, Fisher-Price tool belt. Once that wasn't working, squeak, squeak, once that, once that wasn't doing anything, then I realized I have not invited God into the situation that is about God. And friends, I hope you heard me when I said it. Uh, I used the term tool purposefully. Since prayer is our, our greater focus for today, due to our verses and acts being one solid prayer, basically, but since prayer has many definitions as much as God has, and think about it, I believe nearly every world religion from Islam to Judaism prays in some sort. Because basically, if one believes, then one prays. But for the Christian faith, for the apostles, for us, it's a tool. That might be offending some people, but hear me out. It's a tool, not a hammer which, you know, seals or grounds our salvation. It's not a flathead that tightens God's love for us. It's not a tool of wood, but of worship. And it's not a tool of steel, but of speech. A tool which we use, we practice to see God's kingdom... God's reign, God's purpose is done here and now in and through our lives and on the west side. And then simultaneously, it's a tool which deconstructs our purposes and builds his own in our hearts and minds of our lives. It's this beautiful action of God moving towards earth as we then move towards heaven. See, if you're familiar with the Bible, you remember Christ taught his disciples how to pray. And he gave this framework as a model. I'm only going to read some of it. He says, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, Jesus taught us. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I wonder if these words that I just read, Jesus' lesson on prayer from Jesus, is streaming through Peter's mind at this public prayer gathering he's in. Because to me, they certainly seem like they are. Look how these prayers line up. Verse 24, Sovereign Lord, who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. Friends, it's here in these few words which show us why they didn't run to an Airbnb. It's here in these few words why they didn't file a lawsuit or flee the city. Here's why. Here's why they didn't run. God. Kind of anticlimactic, I know, but... If one wants the iron key to the treasure chest of greater, deeper, powerful, and wondrous prayer, it all comes down to one thing. God. 
We need to understand that there is fewer important words within your prayers or with mine than that of God. We see this perfectly as flies in the wall with, you know, with this public gathering that's happening in Acts 4. See, as the believers don't start with their needs or their fears, they don't fall in the prayer trap that so many of us can easily do of meandering or aimlessness. Aimlessness. That's fine. But they started to look up. What did they do? They looked up. They pulled back the curtain of the urgency and they start the prayer with God. Sovereign Lord. Which is a very beautiful and fitting title for this prayer. Start with God. I'll never forget my senior year of high school. I had, I've probably told you before, I'm going to say it again. I've had, I had four art classes senior year and, and uh, one math class. And that one math class was basic math. Multiplication, division, fractions. And I was failing that math class. Like failing it. And I was failing that, but I was crushing it in sculpture. I mean, you guys should see some of my stuff. I was killing it in sculpture and art and whatever. But I was failing in math. Then, the words I never thought I'd hear for some reason, three months before I'm supposed to graduate, I was told, Casey, you're not going to graduate. You you can't graduate just because of cool sculptures. Uh, That I'm going to have to return to Prescott High School for another year. And I asked the teacher, okay, what can I do? Extensions, extra credit, extra work. And she said the words, it's too late. You will have to come back. It's too late. So I did what any desperate kid in high school would do. I went to the principal. I went straight to the principal. But I don't just go there and, Mr. Garcia, (laughs) to me, Casey. No, I, I found out what his favorite drink was, Dr. Pepper. And I began bringing him a Dr. Pepper every day. Here's a little pop for you, Prince. A bowl. <laughs> and then I started, as I was dropping off the Dr. Pepper, chatting a bit. And then I started to have lunch with him. And then we became pro, uh, bros. And then I laid out my problem with math and how it didn't add up. And boy, <laughs> basically, yada, 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 three months later, I had a cap and gown. I say that super spiritual illustration (laughs) to show how within my time of need, I went and asked the most powerful and only capable person in the entire school who could help me. The only one at the top of the food chain was Mr. Garcia, the Dr. Pepper Levin principal. I had faith that he and only he could get me out of this dilemma. See, for Peter and John and the other believers there, the God of their faith is I mean, the God of their faith is big. This is so Sunday school. The God of the Christian faith is big. Big. Like high school principal of the world big. Thus, the size of their request is the size of their God. In the haze of threats and in the fog of persecution, it doesn't say, please get this, it doesn't say, and the disciples were freaked out no more. It doesn't say, in all uncertainty, he left the disciples Nope. It's hard to believe that they're all cool with the words of the Sanhedrin. We got to get, and please, prayer isn't bleach. Prayer is not bleach. I prayed and there's still fear. I pray and there's still persecution. Or we pray and there's still anxiety. Yeah, because prayer isn't bleach. More often than not, it's not the removal. Hear me, it's not the removal of fear and uncertainty. 
but the including of fear and uncertainty and the outworking of God in and through our lives. For our believers in Acts 4, God was mammoth to their flea-sized fears. Again, it wasn't that the fears disappeared, but in light of who this God they're praying to, I hope we know this about ourselves, Christians. Please, I hope we know this. I hope we know this about ourselves, church. What one believes about God in prayer will shape what you ask from that God in prayer. If we had timid requests, it's because we pray to a poly pocket-sized God. But if we have bold, bold, brave, courageous prayers, we pray to the sovereign Lord over heaven and earth and the sea. Peter's and the other desires, uh, their requests can be cosmic because they believe in a God who crafted the cosmos. And sadly, I was thinking, this is the stub toe with so much of our following Jesus to forget and lose sight of who God is, right? Wouldn't all of our problems in so many ways be solved if we just remembered who God was? I mean, when I hide from God, it's because I lose sight of how present and personal he is. When I blame God, it's because I lose sight of how good he is. When I lose sight of God within my sin and becomes callous and I've grown used to it, it's because I've lost sight of God's holiness and perfection. When I fail to acknowledge his work and I've lost sight of me being somehow in control or made something happen, I've lost sight of who God is. When I fear, I've lost sight of who he is. Collective church, please, 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 please never forget. Key it on the hood of your car, henna tattooed on your face, but never forget that when we pray, we pray to the creator of heaven and earth and the sea and whales and gray white sharks and stingrays and giant squids that reside in them. Why would any of us fear when our God is the creator and maker of giant squids? <laughs> Have you seen a giant squid? Who is the Sanhedrin compared to our ocean maker? Right? What is that dilemma compared to the one who laid the mountains? See, the doctrine of creation is the trump card of all situations. The prayer of theirs, what we see in Acts 4, starts off with the trump of all trump cards. I don't know if you've ran into these conversations. I find them so fascinating when I get the opportunity to speak with believers or Christians who doubt signs and wonders, who are frustrated with certain narratives of the Bible or this book of the Bible or that, yet, yet they believe in Genesis 1, the doctrine of creation. Oh, yeah, I believe in that. Well, how can God do this? God spoke the universe into existence. Well, God can't. No, God can't. He is unbound by our rules and our limits and our mental capacity. Well, surely this is an embellished Bible verse here. No, God created squid. No, it's not. All of this, I'm hoping we can assume, safe to assume, is what the believers were thinking about in that very prayer meeting. See, our creator is far bigger than our fears and their threats. And they continue in their prayers. Look at verse 25. Who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? 
The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. Now, for me, I don't know about you, at first glance, I was thinking Peter, who is more than likely leading this prayer meeting, you think Peter is misquoting something. Crazy old Peter, he's got the wrong verse. But if we slow our roll, we get what's going on. See, in their prayer, they're reminding God of what he has already said, the scripture of Psalms chapter 2. See, this is a text that speaks of the Messiah, Psalm 2 does. Speaks of the anointed one, Jesus. They're drawing lines between similarities here. What the Gentiles mentioned in Psalm 2 and the Romans who were sentenced Jesus by death and crucifixion. And then you look and then with the kings and rulers and hear that kings and hear that, please, kings and rulers. This wasn't like, oh, a couple of men and women. Kings and rulers, powerhouse people are against. Look at verse 26. The kings of the earth, the rulers against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. Verse 28, to do whatever your hand and your plan has predestined to take place. See, with the kings and rulers as mentioned in Psalm 2, and then the rulers of Herod and Pilate mentioned in this prayer, the very ones who ordered and allowed the execution of the anointed one, that being Jesus. Surely they and the Sanhedrin... Again, the Sanhedrin, really, the Jewish, the, you know, the ruling elder of the Jewish people, a senate in so many ways. I think we get that all of them are against Jesus. Their opposition, though, to God is in vain, these verses are telling us. This is what Peter's reminding us. He goes, this is all in vain. This is futile. All of them are raging like wild animals against the Lord's anointed, against the Messiah, against Jesus. So where they meant ill, the prayer again reminds us of all who hear, God had other intentions. Doesn't that prayer have an effect on people? This is ill, this is bad, this is gross, this is worse. God has other intentions. See, God's sovereignty and foreknowledge doesn't prevent their prayers, but is like fuel to fire. Next time you pray, Christians, and I'd extend extend the very same invitation to those here who, who've never prayed, who've never spoken to God, know this. Find comfort in this and never be the same from this. The God who breathed life in humanity has a plan for humanity. One commentator puts it better than I do. The God who made all things, remember that whole creator part? The God who made all things has human history well in his hand. For the human beings are only one sort of God's creation. Basically, what he's saying, the creator will not allow his creation to rot. Peter is reminding everybody, the creator will not allow his creation to be held hostage. As God has sculpted heaven and earth, and as that created earth shattered like porcelain due to the humanity of sin. Due to man being like bent inward. Due to man and woman rejecting God, rejecting his word, rejecting communion and contact with him. That very God, that very rejected God, nonetheless forged away from the very beginning. That way being giving over his son, Jesus Christ. And every prayer, get this, every prayer that was prayed, every disciple that was chosen like Peter and John, every nail that was placed and holding him up on the cross, and every healed man outside of the temple is all part of his glorious plan in reclaiming the shattered world and the shattered lives that live in it. Not glued back together. 
God's not there with Gorilla Glue. But reshaped and refired and made new. See, Christ is the antidote to a poisoned world. To a poisoned life. To poisoned desires. To poisoned efforts. To poisoned purposes. Christ is the antidote. And I hope that you guys hear that as good news. If you're here and you do not know Jesus personally, maybe your, your, your parents did, maybe your spouse does, maybe you've never even thought about it, or maybe you knew Jesus then. Oh yeah, I, I followed Jesus back then. And maybe some church came along and suffocated you, or something horrible happened and changed everything. Or even maybe right now in this moment, you are rejecting God. Right now in this moment, you're rejecting him. I'm here today to tell you that you are rejecting the only one who can make sense of that horrible situation. You are rejecting the only one who can love you with an incorruptible love. You are rejecting the only one who has gone to such lengths, such intense suffering Jesus received, died, and then defeating that very death to be with you. To show you and to show me that there is something Greater, And that something greater is you with God, not an animosity, but fulfilled. When one knows this truth and one is fulfilled in Jesus, and when it's more than knowing it and has become a reality, it's too easy. Yeah, I know the gospel, I know the truth. When it has become a reality, a reality to us, then any attempts to muzzle that good news must be ignored. Fears must be released and cowardice turned to courage. Church, please Watch what happens next and allow it to morph the way we live and be. Look at this. Verse 29. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. Verse 30. While you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. To continue to speak with all boldness. These verses, I hope you know how famous these are. These verses have like their own star in a sidewalk somewhere. They're famously known for the brain melt of the prayer request. That being that the granting of continued opportunities and greater boldness in the face of intense threats. Our natural reaction to this, at least mine is, is pure shock. Pure shock. Because they aren't praying, smash the oppressors. They aren't praying, take down the regime. But a prayer of boldness which shakes the very ground that they are on. Shakes the very ground that they are on. A sign of God's presence and approval. Only those who know the truth of Jesus Christ could be so daring that to place everything they have on him, even their own well-being. Now, what this shows me and what this does to me, what I hope gives us thunderous inspiration and for this church, is roar in us the seriousness of God's mission in our commission. To them, mission, salt and light, being a faithful presence, wasn't a church function, but the church functioning. Man, that line's good. It wasn't a church function. This lifestyle wasn't a church function, but it was a church functioning. 
The entire prayer request is a brave imploring to receive power to tell everybody around them about how a rejected God has forged a way in his son Jesus. For those here uh, who were part of the core group oh so many months ago, Lorenzo hit on these. The seven people were in my living room. Do you guys remember sitting there on the carpet of my living room and you're listening to kids screaming? And we're eating chicken and chips because everybody brings chicken and chips. <laughs> Let's mix it up a bit, guys. No big deal. Everybody brings chicken and chips. But as we're sitting there, and those are some of my favorite times of this church. Wasn't our, our gut just burning inside of us that God would use these very prayers and these very servants sitting around eating chicken, that God would use us, these servants, these prayers, for us to live boldly on the west side, for us to live boldly. We kept praying, God, when we're four months in, may we live boldly. See, we were becoming a Jesus community then, and we are a Jesus community now, seeking to reach and to teach people, and to equip others to do the same. Church, hear me. And the only way we'll become a healthy and multiplying expression, Christ church in each of the 23 neighborhoods that make up the west side, is through prayer. It's through prayer. Not because Casey's a preacher or because we have music or because we meet in uni high. (laughs) We will see people get saved because people are praying. Through confident praying that God's kingdom would come first in our lives and then lead us out. It would burn our security blankets. We are to see the homelessness in Santa Monica. We are to hear the conversations in Century City. We are to behold the gated communities of Bel Air and Beverly Hills. And not to scoff at it, but all of it should cast us on God's grace and power to do crazy, huge things in our context. Just like the apostles and believers demonstrate. Look at verse 31. This is so Rad. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And what's that last part? And continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Holy moly. Holy moly. Allow me to say this. One of the holes people fall in, and I'm guilty of this, one of the holes that people fall in with powerful prayer is then passive living. It's passive living. This making sense of the frustration that the outside world has with prayer, right? For so many, it's total prayer, it's total disengagement. For so many, you're praying, that's just, you're escaping the situation. It's a reflective time to say, for so many, it's to say, God, do something. Well, then we, we withdraw. Friends, prayer is a tool. Hear this. Prayer is a tool that equips us for partnership with the very God we are speaking to. The gorilla of a theologian, one of my favorites, Karl Barth, observed that when he said, the true and proper work of the Christian, the most active workers and thinkers and fighters in the divine service in this world have at the same time and manifestly been the most active in Prayer. All prayer 
should then open the iron gates of action. Now, I didn't say fix or control only what God can do. Hear me out. But prayer is an equipping for the most impactful partnership we could ever be a part of. Think about this. I know we all get this. But how odd is it for, for, for those or for people to pray for the finances of the church, but then not to give? How backwards for people who prayed for the West Side to be filled with love, for Culver City to be filled with love, Playa Vista filled with love, and yet we reject our neighbor. How confusing to pray for God to do amazing things in and through this church, but then to avoid getting involved. I hope Sir Thomas More's prayer for the community of Jesus excites us here and now because this quote rocked me. The things, good Lord, that we pray for, give us the grace to labor for. When the word amen lifts from our lips, that is our personal siren, that is our collective siren to go to do, to be, to be generous, to to be involved, to be bold, to be and do the things we could no way ever do without the sovereign Lord, the creator of heaven and earth and the sea. Amen? Pray with me.